0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 77, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Kristen Cordette farms seven acres of vegetables at Blue Moon Community Farm in Stoughton, Wisconsin. With small-scale, certified organic tractor-based production, Blue Moon Community Farm markets through hyper-local CSA, as well as a farmer's market in the city. Kristen shares how she leveraged the organic certification process and the birth of her son to create systems that improved employee engagement to contribute to the farm's success. And we discuss how her work schedule has evolved to support a sane and full life beyond the confines of the vegetable fields. We also get into the history of the farm, including Kristen's decision to take on debt and transition to full-time farming, and how Blue Moon's market developed and matured with the farm. Kristen tells us about the market style on-farm pickup that has helped her increase customer loyalty and make her farm irreplaceable in the highly competitive of CSA market in the Madison area. By the way, readers of Edible Madison Magazine chose Blue Moon Community Farm for a Local Hero Award in 2015, and I can see why. Kristen brought a ton of value to this episode, and I know that you're going to get a lot out of it. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by you. We've got three new ways for you to support the show. I'll have more information for you at the break, or you can just head straight on over to Farmer to Farmer dot com slash donate if you can't wait. Kristen Cordette, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for having me. So glad that you could join us today. I'd like to get started by having you tell us a little bit about your farm, kind of give us the lay of the land, Blooming Community Farm, where it's located, how many acres you're farming, where you're selling your product.
1: Sure. Yeah, we are um, a small farm. We're 10 acres in size. Um, As far as the land that that we own, we're just about 12 miles south and east of Madison proper. Um, And so we are situated kind of right on the edge of the city there. And when we were looking for a farm, um, we certainly had hoped for more acreage than we now own, but it's turning out to to work out pretty well as far as the kind of business that I ended up running. Um, Right now we have a CSA program that serves 175 families per week. Um, We have about 300 families involved in the program through various ways. And then we do kind of a high-volume high farmer's market in Madison, um, the West Side Community Market, which is not the downtown market, but there's lots of lots of great markets around the city. And then we do a little bit of restaurant uh, sales, but that's been something that we stepped back from in the last few years and really focused much more on, on the CSA and the market.
0: And how many acres are you actually farming then of the 10 acres that are on your land?
1: Mm, yeah, so we have about six tillable acres on our our land, and then I rent another five acres from our neighbor. so it's adjoining property. And of that, we have just about seven acres in production each year. And so we're cover cropping some of our land for full seasons, and just about all of the land sees a cover crop at some point during during the growing season or during the winter months. And so, that's grown in size, you know, very, very slowly over time. Um, we're in our, we, it's our 14th CSA season and, um, we started on two acres and now we're, we're settling on seven. It's sort of a long-term, um, right size for me.
0: And do you have a long-term lease on that five acres that you're renting?
1: No, that's, that's a bit of a challenge. Um, I don't, it's been a, an agreement that we've had not even in writing, you know, all the things that they say you shouldn't do necessarily. And we've rented it each year by, by verbal agreement. And the the owner of the property actually passed away a couple of years ago. And we, so we've been leasing from his son and we're hoping to purchase that, that acreage and, he he said sort of casually that he'd be interested in that, but that's as far as the conversation's gone. So I certified that land in 2010, and so it seemed quite a bit of um, organic management, organic inputs, um, quite a bit of of sweat labor into creating some some really great production on that land. And I I'd, I'd hate to see it fall out of our hands, and hopefully hopefully it won't. But quite honestly, it's a piece of, piece that no one else probably wants because it's landlocked and, and adjoining our <laughs> farm. <laughs> and so we have that going for us.
0: Those nice little corners yeah. that we can take advantage of as vegetable growers that <laughs> right. don't really work in a corn and soybean situation.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So you said your, your farm is certified organic. Yes. Who do you certify with? W- we're certified through MOSA. Through MOSA, the Midwest mm-hmm. Organic Services Association. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right. And, and I'm curious, I mean, a lot of people would say that for, you know, doing a CSA farm and a farmer's market as, as the cornerstone of your business, that the certification really isn't necessary. You know, your customers, they know you. Why did you choose to certify?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I started out my CSA and farmer's market business in 2004 um, without being certified. This is on a, a rented piece of property before we um, purchased the, the farm that the that the business currently resides on, and uh, I really didn't think there was a need for certification. Um, I had a very small business; uh, it seemed overly cumbersome. I knew my customers directly. You know all of the all of the reasons why um, certification just seemed like not not the highest priority. Um, but over time, you know, the market changed. Um, certainly, the Madison market changed, and um, I really started to feel that that certification was going to be something that was that was going to be important to communicating what our production values were on the farm. And quite honestly, it was a process that I think a lot of people go through and, and come out the other side saying, I'm a much better farmer having gone through it. Um, and I think about that process of certifying our, our production and our land as one of the One of the most important things that brought brought much needed record keeping, much needed systems to the farm that that helped make it successful. Um, It really it really was a big part of that trajectory.
0: So you hear that a lot from people that are that have gotten certified organic. They'll say it it helped me be a better farmer. And I understand from the record-keeping side, just being conscious of what's going on on your farm. But I'm curious, you said other systems. What what else is it about being certified organic versus just growing organically that helps you be a better farmer?
1: For myself, it, it required me as a small farmer to involve other people in the systems of the farm in a way that they were not before. Uh, I was Attempting to manage pretty much all aspects of the farm myself, um, which often or more times than I would care to admit meant that they weren't being managed as well as they should have been. And so um, things like scouting for pests things like um, keeping up with a spray regimen if you were, if we decided to go forward with one, making sure that cultivation was done in a timely manner. Some of those things would just slip through the cracks. And I was trying to keep up with with the management and uh, operate with as lean a crew as I possibly could in those early years when money was tight. And, and you just Flew by the seat of your pants. I think a lot of people did that, and so it was part of the part of the development of the farm um, that, in order to maintain the kinds of well, the kinds of records and the the type of production that I needed to, in order to comply with. Um, the rules and have a good inspection and make sure that my eyes were dotted and my T's were crossed. It meant involving other people in that process. and that in itself sort of pushed me toward uh, creating systems of management that involved um, other people on the farm and more eyes on the crops and, and more people being able to, to take in and, and identify when we have an issue that needs to be addressed.
0: With your seven acres of production, then how many other people do you have working on the farm with you?
1: Well, at this time of the year in July, we we have six full- time uh, employees in addition to myself. And I should say that i I run the business as a a sole owner manager. My husband, who also lives on the farm, doesn't doesn't farm with me. So it's myself plus uh, six full- time employees and one part time. Right now, uh, we also have a crew of worker share CSA members. Uh, we have about 10 people who uh, join us for a few hours a week doing anything from weeding in the fields to helping at our distribution. Um, all of our CSA members collect their share here at the farm, and so we have worker shares who help out with that. We have sitter shares who take care of my three year old son in exchange for a cSA share, so lots of different people are involved in small ways on the farms. Um, but we'll start to taper off that full time crew come September. We'll be down to four full timers by the end of September, and we'll be down to about two full- time equivalents by November and by december we're um we're pretty much out of work. <laughs>
0: Do your employees come back year after year, or is it really a seasonal situation?
1: Well, that's been a a real challenge, having um, a farm that's of a size that I can't really employ people through the winter. I end up um, having a two- or three-month period where um, I, I can't offer any work. And so I've been really lucky in the last five years or so that I have had returning employees who have come back for two or three years. And so this year, for instance, we have um, four people who are returning for um, another year, one of whom has been with me four years, and the others have been with me two. And then we have a couple of new people as well. And so every year it's a mix of, of returning folks and, and people who have who have been with the farm and It's a real challenge because everybody knows what what an expense of time and energy it can be to train in new employees, and particularly if you're entrusting some management tasks to them. That sort of that trust is not built overnight, and so uh, that time period of getting to know one another and our work styles is, you know, it's an investment. And hopefully, you know, if we have a good relationship, we can continue to work together for a while. But um, without year around work, that's, that's not an easy thing to ask.
0: I think a lot of people know that the Madison area is, well, it's thick with with organic vegetable farms. I mean, you, you really can't turn a corner here without running into somebody. And I know sometimes even just driving out in the country, you'll, you know, you run on to organic vegetable farms almost everywhere. And there must be a lot of competition for good employees
1: Absolutely, yeah, I think um and in some ways, we're very lucky because we do we're so close to Madison that we have a labor market that's pretty good size right there that we don't need to feel compelled to say offer housing on the farm because people can find housing easily in the surrounding communities, but it does mean that we we get a lot of inquiries from say uh, folks who don't, the university is, is full of people who want to, want to dip their toes in the water of farming. And we don't, we don't seem to get a lot of serious, uh, applicants for, from people who want to pursue farming as a vocation. And that can be really difficult, um, parsing out who is really interested in learning um the the nuts and bolts of farming versus someone who thinks it would be really fun to work on the farm for a summer. We need those folks too. Um but those relationships can can often go sour <laughs> um when the farming gets tough or when you have a 95 degree day or um when someone suddenly realizes they they don't like working outside as much as they thought they would.
0: Right. And, and, and we're right in the middle of a, of, of a heat wave right now here in Madison. So I imagine this, you know, th- it's this kind of weather that really makes people think like, Ugh, right. I don't know if I really want to do this.
1: <laughs> yeah. These are the testing days. You know, we encounter so many people in the community who say, isn't it wonderful that you get to spend every day outside? And we say, yeah, it is wonderful, but think about it. We spend every day outside <laughs> yes. um, regardless. And so, it's, it's a bit of a blessing and a challenge to be to be close to Madison, and, and I, I do feel that overall it is, it is a blessing because we have always had a good competitive pool of applicants for our positions, and I know that's not the case for a lot of farms that are in the more remote areas and rural areas to find good labor. So I feel like we're very fortunate in that regard.
0: Now, one of the other hallmarks here in the in the Madison area with so many farmers, especially if you're choosing to do something like a CSA program, is there's a lot of competition here.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's an amazing number of CSAs in the Madison area for the size population that we have. And um, I have to say, it's because of our farm size and because of the type of program that we run, I think we've been... A, a bit insulated from that although i feel like every year i feel like this is going to be the year that we're going to start to struggle because we you know we just don't know what the market is going to do but our our CSA clientele largely comes from our closest communities around us. So even though we're 12 miles from Madison, very few of our CSA members reside in Madison. Um, We have three communities that are within five miles of the farm, Stoughton, McFarland, and Oregon. And most of our CSA members come from those communities. And so we've been very, very lucky to be able to draw on our very local surroundings. And because everyone comes to the farm to pick up their shares on the same day, it, it's much more of a gathering place and it's a I think it's an experience that's a little bit more difficult to trade out for another CSA. It's a little bit more of a unique experience for the CSA members, and that's led to um, our being able to retain our members um, year after year. We We tend to have a fairly high retention rate. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with it is that people develop those direct connections and they're having experiences on the farm that are different from picking up a box. And no matter how more convenient that might be than having to up out to the farm it's a, it's an experience that they that they're wanting and coming back for year after year.
0: Well, and I remember in back in in college when I took psychology 101, one of the things they talked about was that the, you know, the harder something was, the more people tended to be committed to it. It's why you it's why you haze people into a mm-hmm. into a fraternity or or into another situation because that that actually increases the level of commitment. And I would imagine that coming to the farm week after week after week is is engaging and it it increases people's level of commitment. Plus, the fact if you're saying that most people are coming from communities that are very close to your farm, rather than even driving the the twenty minutes that it might take to get there from Madison, mm-hmm. that there's not other farms that can duplicate that service.
1: Right, or certainly there there are very few of them right now, um, and so we we've been very fortunate uh, in that and. and yeah, I think that people it, the, the CSA membership has become sort of a self-selected group of people who are looking for that instead of the convenience of of other types of distribution, because there's certainly a place for that in the scheme of, of CSA options, too, and it's kind of the, the fun thing of, of CSA is you can put your own spin and your own twist on it, um, but I started my farming experience in upstate New York, where it seemed to me that having more of an interactive, we call it a market style distribution, where we're not packing boxes, but people are actually loading their own bags when they're coming to the farm. Um, This very interactive way of distributing the share was very common there. And so when I moved to the Midwest, um, looking for a job and wanting more experience on farms, I was surprised to see that there was a different Dominant um, pattern of distribution that people have adopted here, and I think it's become much more the case in, you know, on the East Coast as well. But at the time that I was working out there, this this other model
0: was very prevalent. So tell me about how your on-farm pickup works.
1: Yeah, so every Wednesday during the season, um, between three and seven, the, all of our members come to the farm, and we set up in an overhang in front of our barn, we set up long benches with bins of uh, all of the different items that are available that we can share. And above each bin, there's a sign that says what it is and how many to take. And so occasionally there's a choice of two different things if we have a small harvest of something. Um, Sometimes it'll say, take all you want if we have an enormous quantity of something Um, and so people check themselves off on their, on the sheet at the beginning, and then they, they bring their own shopping bags or we'll provide bags for them and they go down the line and collect up their share. And then, um, at the end we have a little bin, we call it the take it or leave it bin. A lot of CSAs do that where they can leave behind things they know they won't use or take extra of something that someone else left behind. Um, and so then they've collected the share that. We've we've harvested and washed and packed for them, and then they have the option of visiting our u pick areas. So we have a few areas of the farm that we've opened up to the members. Um, The most most consistent and the most popular are the the flower gardens, which are right in the barnyard next to our barn where we distribute. So people pick bouquets to take with them, and then we have an herb garden on the edge of our. Of our production fields, and and they can go visit the herb garden and pick additional herbs if they need anything for the week. And then later on in the season, we have sauce tomatoes and cherry tomatoes and pickling cucumbers and things for preserving that we also uh, open up to the membership for picking as part of their share. And so th- there comes a point in the season when it gets fairly chaotic if you've ever. Come to our farm it's it feels rather suburban. We've got very close neighbors. We're sort of farming our neighbors' backyards because we own this remnant of a of an old farmstead um where the road frontage was sold off as lots long long ago and so you drive up into our barnyard and it it can be a little chaotic when people are staying for an hour an hour and a half to go and visit all the different areas where they can pick things. They're not you know, bouncing in and out in 10 minutes. And so we actually have to have one of our volunteers sort of direct traffic at that point of the season. (laughs) Um, So there's, you know, there's definitely some... Some difficulties with the system, but we've made it work as best we can. And people are very, people are very patient and understanding. You know, we we're very much a working farm. Although I try more and more each year to make the farm a little bit more public friendly. You know, I I don't want to be a manicured, (laughs) moan space the way that you know, maybe some members might hope it to be, but I want it to look a little nicer and make it a little easier for people to get around or push their strollers over to the herb garden. And so we're we're trying to make those types of improvements, which is something I sort of resisted at first, but the membership is so, they're so committed to the farm and they they love being there and making it a more beautiful place for them to spend time is definitely become a much higher priority for me over the years.
0: What are some of the other things you've done on the farm to make it a a family friendly, member friendly environment?
1: Well, we, we have a kind of a philosophy that, that our farm is your farm. And so um, we really do encourage members to come out and spend time. If they want to come out to the farm on a different day, which many people do, they they just have to let me know they're coming and they can spend time out here. Um, they can have lunch at the picnic table. Their kids can play on the jungle gym while the parents pick veggies. And um, we try to make it as sort of casual within, within some boundaries um, as we can so that people can really kind of feel like it's, it's their farm we we raise a small number of livestock which is very much motivated by members particularly you know the the kids that come out to the farm their interest in seeing animals and visiting them and feeding them things and seeing what they like and so we we raise a few pigs and we raise some chickens and turkeys. And that's a big part of, of many people's experiences when they come to the farm is to visit the animals and see how they're growing and things like that.
0: So with with members being so involved with the farm, have you gone the route of having a core group and, and those sorts of, you know, very, I almost call it like a deep CSA mm-hmm. sort of aspects to your farm?
1: I haven't, and I I want to. <laughs> I I would like to go in that direction in in the next year or two to develop um, or maybe call upon some of our really long term members to help um, sort of guide guide decisions, bigger big picture decisions about the farm, and to just have for me sort of a founding board. I think that's one of the the real downsides to not being a true family farm in the sense that I'm the primary you know, owner of business is that I don't have that sounding board all the time, uh, of people who are, who are involved enough in the, in the farm that they, they have opinions and they have ideas for what would make it better and, and what kinds of things they'd like to see. And so, um, I would like to, I would like to take things in that direction. It's funny. I, I, in some ways I feel like the, the weekly contact that I have because i I staff the pickup every week from three to seven, so I'm always there, and I talk with a lot of people every single week, and having that level of contact every week, I feel like I get a lot of that anyway, um but not in a not in a at a time of the year or in a way that I can really channel it and and contemplate it. It's usually more of a um July August September time where my brain is is a little bit is a little bit fried and so it would be great to bring those conversations into the off season.
0: You need one of these pocket notebooks books like I carry around all the time so you can jot down all those ideas and then just throw them in a file that you can pull out in November and sit do. down and ponder at the appropriate time. So um <laughs>
1: I've been right. to so many of your workshops, Chris, and I leave <laughs> so committed to so many of these systems and I still have hope that one day I'm going to have the pocket notebook system and the file the file folder system <laughs> set and ready to go. Maybe this will be my year.
0: So then you also do the farmers market over on the I mean now, I'm here in Madison, so I'm going to say over on the west side of Madison, but you do you do a farmers' market that's not the not the main big one that's around the Capitol Square, but is another kind of an ancillary smaller market, but I think still a fairly active market over there on the west side of Madison,
1: yes, yeah. the west side community market it's been it's been a wonderful market for our farm. it started up in two thousand and five and I started vending there in two thousand and six and we, you know, it's a, it's a high volume market. We sell a lot of produce there. We have wonderful, wonderful, loyal customers. Um, We, we started a market share program, which a lot of, a lot of farms are starting to do now. So essentially a punch card system at, at the farmer's market. And so we have a hundred families who are part of the farm through that means. So those are Madison residents who are, who are part of the farm. They can shop the sand, um, as a debit to their card, and they can also come out and do the u picking that's open to all of our members and come to our events and things like that and That's been a great way you know it's funny how many how many market customers you can have and see them every week and and it took them joining the c s a before I really got to know them and even know even know anything about them or their families and I might have known their first name I might not have. And so it's been a great way to get to know our market customers and kind of bring them into the farm in a different way. So I think those kinds of programs are are just really great. And so that market has been a big part of our of our our current scheme. It's about a third of our business right now, but it's also sitting on a piece of property that's slated for redevelopment. And so oh. it's going to be it's going to be moving to a to a temporary new location next year so you know we'll see how that affects things as far as the the market traffic and the market volume but i know many farmers who want to want to wean themselves off of farmers markets for as soon as soon as they can because there's a lot of markets that are difficult to make a living at um to make it worth your time and your travel and your investment. And this one really has. It has been a great market and I hope it continues to be. But one of the one of the strategies we've considered and thinking about the changes that are coming is, you know, how can we how can we continue to build the CSA as an alternative to to the market should that should that happen. And I think that I think for us right now our CSA has room to grow. Um, We have a wait list. We have a wait list every year. And I think that we could, I think that we could expand what we do. We would need to, we would need to set up a separate or a second um, pickup day because we cannot have another car
0: come into our,
1: (laughs) into our barnyard. (laughs) That's our limiting factor right now.
0: (laughs) And then you do restaurant sales as well
1: yep yeah, just a little bit when I first started my business i I was selling much more to restaurants and marketing to restaurants and and it was a wonderful way to get to know get to know chefs and they were they were great supporters of the business um, but i I learned over time that it's it's not something I'm very good at uh, i I felt for our size for our scale of farm um, the needs of chefs and the needs of CSA members were felt very different to me. Um, if I was going to do a really good job of serving my chef customers, I needed to grow, you know, 15 to 20 things and grow them consistently throughout the year. But for CSA customers, I need to grow more than that and have a nice rotation of things because they don't want Napa cabbage every week, but the chefs do. And so there was there was this kind of, pulling in two directions. And on our scale and at our level of production, I reached a point where I felt like I had to make a choice. And so we went in the direction of CSA and keeping that diversity. Um, Whereas I know other small farms who made the opposite choice and are doing very well um, dropping their CSA program and serving chefs instead. Um, And so I think it also has to do with personality and the kinds of relationships that you feel most comfortable with. And I felt that my relationships with my CSA customers, that was where I felt most comfortable. I, I just felt like that was what fit best with um, the personality of the farm and the kind of farm that I wanted to that I wanted to run.
0: With the seven acres of production, then that you've got, and and having having geared that mostly towards the CSA and the farmers' market rather than towards the restaurants, can you tell us about what kind of a production system you're using there? I mean, I feel like you know 7 acre farms back in the early 2000s seemed to be a fairly common occurrence now it feels like a lot of people are doing kind of 20 acres and up or else they're doing the you know the 2 acres or less kind of JM48 style thing you're sort of stuck solidly in the middle
1: mhm mhm <laughs> i am and and i do think for the for the system that we've established it for our farm, it, it it is a sweet spot. It might not be for every farm. You know, every farm has its own equation of resources and, and what, you know, what sort of output and production it needs to have in order to make everything work. And also, again, coming back to like the personality of the farmer, I knew that I didn't want to be, I knew that I wanted to be on a tractor. I wasn't going to try to farm um, in the sub tractor scale. Um, but I'm also not a mechanic, and I'm not a tinkerer. and so the the equipment that I had needed to work well, or I needed to have people around me that that can help fix it. and there couldn't be too much of it. And so knowing those things, um, and having spent time on farms that where I was you know like got got used to using certain pieces of equipment that I really liked, um, I started building the farm toward the scale that I knew I could manage and that I knew I would feel comfortable in and so I always kind of had that idea of in that five to eight acre range was where I would probably end up and so we um you know we have we we have a, a system of production that's set up for mechanical cultivation we have a, a cultivating tractor we seed um with with a tractor um, with tractor mounted cedars. we We do all of our transplanting by hand um, but spaced on the beds in a way that we can mechanically cultivate. Um, but we do have tools that have come in handy on on our scale as far as root digging and plastic laying and other types of bed preparation tools and things like that. but we're, we're not heavily mechanized. Um, there's a lot of hand hand labor. And it's come down to having, you know, plenty of worker shares on hand and, and getting better and better at controlling weeds so that we're not in the fields um, hand, hand, hand weeding, hand cultivating as much as we were in the beginning. And so, um, good, you know, getting better at growing, um, on the same scale has made us more productive on the same acreage. You know, when I was, I, well, it's kind of funny. I had an interview with, with some assistant managers that I ended up hiring back in 2013. And, and they joke with me when I talked to them because I told them at the time that um, we have a hundred CSA members and that's about what our acreage can support. And um, so that's where we're going to stop. And we every year added added members. And now we're this year, we have, have 180 and we're farming the same acreage. And, in our production is just increased and increased every year on that same acreage. And so um, we're getting better at what we're doing. Our soil's getting better. Um, You know, we bought a pretty worn out farm. And so, you know, building soil, churning in cover crops, putting down as much, um, you know, as much uh, materials and fertility as we can to help just build that soil back up has really, it's really begun to pay off.
0: So I'm interested when I mean when you talk about going from 100 CSA members in 2012 to now 180 uh, families that are picking up every week here in in 2016, and and that coming from become, being more productive on the farm, I mean, how how does that actually work? I mean you I mean you're still putting out the same number of head lettuces per row. How
1: mm-hmm.
0: how do you actually go about that increasing of your productivity?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, we've We've gotten better at planning. Uh, I've gotten better at planning. So we we have so little waste on the farm. Um, there's so little that we grow that isn't sold. And that comes down to tweaking your numbers year after year of, um, oh, we need to grow fewer beans. We need to grow more cauliflower. We need to grow... You know, we need to tweak these numbers so that our proportions of, of vegetables in our successions are better in, in line with what our needs are. And so making those tweaks over time, um, better weed control, direct translation into better yields in a lot of those crops, whether it's um, beets or carrots or um, salad mix or spinach, um, things like that have really have really benefited us overall, you know, just overall size yields. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's looking at at our onions this year and saying, "My god, I've never seen such big onions." <laughs> and so, you know, there's just um, we're we're having we're having really nice really nice production in a in a really wide range of growing conditions, which to me uh, indicates that we've built some resilience into the system and we can handle a variety of, of situations. And so, you know, in 2012, when we had the drought and the extended um, periods of really hot weather, um, we were not fully equipped to irrigate our acres, you know, having just seven acres, but working everything off of a house well with a pretty low volume, we were not set up to, um, to, to cope with a set of circumstances like that. And, And this year, even in just the the short, you know, the short spells of dryness and the um, and the heat that we've had, I I I feel entirely different. That if we had an extended drought, we could handle it; it would be fine. I mean, it it would compromise things to some extent, things that don't like that heat, but we could certainly keep the water on our crops. And so that is a good feeling that we've made made those kinds of changes, and and that directly translates into, you know, stress and just the overall energy that goes into um, trying to manage for things for the unknown. Um, you know, we have fewer unknowns, uh, more more predictable um, patterns of activity to get that production. So just over, overall experience over time, I guess, on the same piece of land gets us there.
0: So to dig a little bit deeper into your production systems, you're using tractors then for your, for your tillage and for your cultivation. How wide are your beds? What kind of wheel spacing are you on?
1: Yeah, we have 60-inch um, centers, so five-foot beds, and we grow most of our crops. Well, I wouldn't say most. We, we grow some crops on three rows, 15 inches apart, and some crops on two rows, 30 inches apart, and then some, some one-row crops. Um, and that's those are the those are the spacings that our cultivation system is set up to handle, and so everything is planted so that it can um, that it can be mechanically cultivated. We have several tools on our on our tractor that we can use, from a basket leader to beet knives to Danish tines, um, hilling discs, whatever the crop might might demand. So most things are are. Well, everything is mechanically cultivated and some things don't get hand weeded at all. Um, that always feels like a triumph when we can harvest a crop that we didn't have to touch <laughs> before that point.
0: It's always so nice when that happens. Yeah. What what kind of cultivating tractor do you have?
1: I have a, a case, um, two sixty five offset high-clearance tractor, Um, so it's got a little bit more capability than, say, a G or something quite a bit smaller. Um, We can can run PTO equipment on it. We can, you know, run a small mower if we need to. Um, We use it for all of our spraying if we're going to do some uh, pest control with it, um, which is great because it drives over some rather tall crops, and so... It's uh, used quite a bit on the farm.
0: And then, how big of a tractor do you have for doing your tillage work?
1: We have a, a 60 horsepower uh, hydro, an 84 hydro, an International. So it's a you know 40 year old tractor um, that's that kind of fit the bill for us. There's been a few occasions where I wish it was a little bit bigger, um, but for the most part, it's the right size. It's just big enough to pull our plastic mulch digger, which is also our carrot digger and our sweet potato digger and all those other things. Um, Just, just enough horsepower to get us through the beds. And we have rather heavy soil. So that is a big, a big factor in that too. Um, Just big enough to pull a three time chisel plow. (laughs) Um, And then a six foot tiller is what we use for a lot of our bed preparation. And so um, we have an assortment of other tools that we use for it. And it may be in the cards in the future to have a bigger tractor on hand, um, or to, to rent, rent time on a tractor to do some deeper tillage. Cause I think that's something that's affecting our, our weed control. Some of our perennial weeds is our ability to do, um, to do good subsoiling, um, in our soils and, and get some better drainage and better aeration deep down.
0: So I'm going to take that as an opportunity with the perennial weed management, because I've read an article, uh, that was recently published in, in Edible Madison magazine, and they actually mentioned that you're, you struggle with some Canada thistle on your farm.
1: Yes, we do. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Um, it's, you know, I sometimes when I'm feeling, um, well, when I'm when I'm feeling the need to uh, deflect blame, I will t- I will tell people that our farm was fallow, uh, was completely uncropped for the year when it was for sale, before we purchased it, um, and it it did grow a ton of thistle, which our neighbors said went to feed and then got to got to continue its cycle and c- continue to grow, um, but in actuality you know, we certainly are are doing things to spread it around and perpetuate it too, as much as we're trying to eradicate it. Um, you know, a growing crop is a very poor place to try to uh, eradicate a, a, a weed like that. And so we've gone to, um, well, it was in conjunction with a, a research trial that a a researcher at the University of Illinois was doing, was looking for participants to do some on-farm trials using sorghum sudan to control um, thistle. And so this is one of the things that we do with uh, our, our fields. Our fields are about a half an acre in size with several of our fields each year. Um, is put them into a full season of cover crop in attempt to control the thistle. So we identify <laughs> our worst fields and the regimen that that the researcher recommended that that seems to work at least in the short term is to disc or to shallowly till those fields at least once or twice in the spring, and then at the beginning of June um, do do a full bed preparation and and. And uh, drill in sorghum sudan and let that grow up. And when it gets to about five feet, four or five feet tall, um, you mow it and and let it grow again, and it sort of mulches itself with all of that material and and also tillers and and you know starts to grow thicker and and more densely in the field. And then you let it grow to about four feet again and you mow it and you might mow it three times over the course of the season. And then of course the winter kills and you till it under either late season or, or early the next spring. And we've seen a huge reduction in the the thistle population after doing that for a year. It means taking your land out of production for a whole year. Um, but I figure from our experience that we can get three good years of greatly reduced thistle population before we might see things kind of creep in again. Um, it doesn't mean it's gone entirely, but it's it's probably 10% of what it was. It's pretty amazing. And so we've tried to do that on as many of our fields as we can. And, and, and of course, the three years go by and you've got to start that rotation again. And so um, it's what keeps me primarily from uh, cultivating more of our acreage on an annual basis, because we can work cover crops into our into our um, rotation without taking a full season off. But um, we really can't control that thistle uh, without doing that.
0: Well, I think it's one of those things that points to why it's so important to have if 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 you can make this work with your farming system those those extra acres because organic farming is basically a biological system. And biology takes time. It is an important component in management. And if you don't, if you don't have land, if you don't have enough land so that you can fallow some stuff, you're really missing an important tool in your toolbox.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But it makes it, it makes it such a difficult choice, uh, you know, for us right now, I would love to have a little more land. (laughs) I would love to have a bit more room for expansion or to, or to just grow a little bit more of those space intensive crops right now for our CSA distribution. We, we purchase in potatoes and we purchase in um, sweet corn because those, we just don't have the space. Um, We need to grow higher value crops on our acreage and the amount of space we would need to devote to those to meet the needs of our, CSA would be um just far more than we could we could afford and so um yeah it is it's it's something you have to keep reminding yourself that this is worth it and this is part of what we're doing here to steward the land is to make sure things stay in balance and and it's meant that I can I can support other other growers in the area and that part I've really I've really enjoyed to be able to um you know be able to tap some of the best growers of certain crops and say, "Hey, let's let's put these in the CSA share," and
0: and then I feel everyone wins. So, Kristen, we're at a spot now where we should stop and take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Kristen Cordette from Blue Moon Community Farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do, produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could to make my own potting soil and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But I found out what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switched to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs September 21st to December 21st First, taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com This week, the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. And the nice thing about that is that I don't need to go on and on about it because the fact that you're here probably means that you already think the Farmer to Farmer podcast is kind of cool. We put three ways in place that you can directly support the podcast at Farmer FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com slash donate. First, you can become a patron of the show by setting up a monthly donation through Patreon, which is kind of like Kickstarter for ongoing projects. By providing ongoing support, your patronage allows me to put my energy where it's used best on creating and producing a great podcast. Or you can do a one-time donation through PayPal, which would also be awesome. Third, if you shop on Amazon.com, use the link at farmer Amazon to start your shopping session, and the podcast will get a percentage of what you spend. Go to farm dot com slash donate for more information and all of the relevant links. Thank you so much for your support. And we're back with Kristen Cordett from Blue Moon Community Farm in Stoughton, Wisconsin, which is just south of Madison, Wisconsin. So, Kristen, on, on your seven acres and, and with this mix of farmers markets and CSA and a little bit of restaurant on the side, what do your gross sales look like in the year?
1: Well, um, they, luckily for us, go up go up a little bit every year. Um, this year, our we're budgeted. Our income is budgeted to be about two seventy, two hundred seventy thousand off those acres.
0: So that I mean that's about forty thousand dollars an acre. That's a pretty respectable yield for tractor farming. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Congratulations on that. Well, thanks. And are you making a living off of that at this point? Yes. Um, yes,
1: I'm making a, a you know a pretty solid middle income from the farm it took however many, what, 13 years to get, (laughs) to get there. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I was, I was pretty determined in the beginning to um, start a farm business that I could walk away from at any point, which meant I didn't, I didn't want any debt um, following me until I was, I was absolutely certain that this was going to be, you know, what I was going to do. And so, uh, I spent the first seven years of my business um, farming by day, um, cash flowing my expenses through farm sales and paying myself very little, uh, waiting tables at night and and making making things work that way while I was looking for, you know, a permanent home for the farm. I was on rented land at the time. And then when I was able to find a farm, to buy and was ready to make that commitment to say, I was, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build, build this business with an eye toward permanency. Um, that's when I felt a little more comfortable um, going out and seeking financing. And so I got a an FSA loan to, um, to jumpstart the, the move to our permanent, permanent farm. It helped finance, you know, hoop houses, greenhouse, uh, tractor equipment. Uh, a new well we needed to install a new well and and things like that in order to um, to set up set up the the farm modest as it was for um, you know for for growth and and production. and so you know, at that point in time, I was still making a very modest income from the farm, but once I had those essentials in place, that's when we were able to start earning an income directly from the farm. And I was able to leave my off-farm job, um, yeah, seven years into, <laughs> into running the business. And, and in 2013, I was expecting a baby in May, which was crazy. <laughs> and I, for the first time, went and hired uh, an assistant management team to help to run the farm, knowing that I wasn't going to be able to have the same role as I had before. And when I went into that process, I thought, well, this is going to be a year that I forfeit my income and hire people to run the farm and then we'll recover from that and things will be fine. It turned out to be our most profitable year by far (laughs) than a year that (laughs) preceded it, which I tried not to take personally, but (laughs) it really meant that you know, it forced me to create more of these systems on the farm that meant our our production was in check. We were keeping on top of things. We were um, conscientious about our seeding schedules and making sure that everything was in line. And, and we had really wonderful production. And that's just continued every year as I've had these assistant managers on the farm. It's just been, um, I realized that I'm I'm a team player. I really like having a group of people where we're all we all have similar goals and we're deciding how to how to get things done. I mean, I'm I'm still calling the shots. Bottom line, but I need that sort of the camaraderie of a team to um to to keep things moving. And and I realized that over the last few years that that's been a really big key to
0: um to our farm's profitability. So I'm really interested to know more about how that relationship works with with what you just described, because, you know, when I when I read that that you had a young child and and I was thinking, well, wow, because Kristen, you know, owns and and runs this farm herself. And and now you're telling me you had a baby in May, which means you're certifiably crazy. Uh, Yeah. yeah. And I mean, like, I mean, you know, most farmers are a little bit crazy, but this is this is flat out wacko. and 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 then you go and have your most profitable year ever there's got to be more to that than just hiring somebody and saying well you're the assistant manager of greenhouse transplant production
1: <laughs> right yeah absolutely there was there was a lot more and a lot of it had to happen a lot of a lot of things that happened that year um should have happened long before that year but it was it was the birth of my son that really uh, forced, forced me to let go of some things that I didn't need to be holding on to so tightly. Um, and it forced me to, again, you know, create, create systems of communication, um, ways of organizing our work that could be more transparent to other people on the farm that other people could pick up and run with. And I didn't need to be there. I could, I could just, I could. Be missing from the scene, and work wouldn't grind to a halt. And
0: so, tell me about one of those. Let, let's let's pick one of those systems and kind of flesh it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what what was something then that you were holding on to tightly, you let go of, and then how did you what what did you put in place to make the the work the communication more transparent to the other people who were involved in your absence?
1: Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. um, Well, a simple thing that we started doing right away when I had assistant managers was, um, you know, our weekly field walk, which so many farms do, but we, I never did it with any of my staff. And so we, um, the three of us, I had two assistant managers um, walk the field for two hours every week on Monday and put together our work plan for the week, strategizing when things Could get done and when, um, you know what what projects are good to have our worker worker share crew put on. Which things were um, higher priority than others, and we agreed upon a game plan um, for the week that obviously changes day to day, as we all know. And we would revisit that um, most mornings, but it gave everyone this roadmap for the week that you know it sounds so simple but we all know that it also means that everyone's invested in these outcomes on the farm and no one is is out there working not having any idea what comes after the thing they're doing and so it it creates that sense of urgency that we all you know that we all wish for in a crew that kind of keeps the fire under everybody to to keep moving because we have all these other things ahead and and when when we can share in that plan, I think people are are more committed to the farm they're more likely to share observations to um, use their own intuition about a situation they're seeing in the field. Um, they're more observant in general, and because it's become part of our routine to be observant to to Um, share what we're seeing and doing around the farm. And I think that 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 kind of communication was really limited before. It was much more one way coming from me and not always with outcomes that were positive, both in a management of production standpoint, but also in the management of employees and employee morale. Uh, I think it had a big effect on both of those things.
0: It's really interesting to me how when you create one small space where communication is both ways, like this like this field walk that you're talking about, how that kind of blossoms into more two-way communication during the rest of the week.
1: absolutely, absolutely. yeah, and I think that um, when when we have that opportunity to um, discuss things in that setting where we're not racing off to do another task or my employees don't feel like they're stealing my time away from something that that could be more urgent mm-hmm. than what they have to tell me. Um, it just, it, it opens that up to nothing is off the table right now. Let me know what you're thinking. And that, that's had a big effect on on really our ability to tackle problems because I don't see everything. It's one of the downsides of <laughs> stepping back a bit. Um, since the birth of my son, I I don't, I don't actually see things as immediately as I did before. I rely very heavily on other people's observations. And so that's really important.
0: What kind of a work schedule do you and your crew keep at Blue Moon Community Farm?
1: Hmm. We have a um, we have a pretty pretty set schedule. I could probably count on two hands in two years the times that we've diverged from <laughs> our regular hours and we, we start at eight o'clock and we end at four thirty every day in the spring and fall and then in the summertime we go crazy and we start at quarter to eight and go to four thirty. Wow. <laughs> I know, those are long days. <laughs> and so I mean if I had thought that this were my work schedule ten years ago so ten years ago I was like, you know, Farming every possible minute until I had to go scrub my hands with bleach water to get the stain off of them so I could go, you know, serve at a fine dining restaurant (laughs) at night. (laughs) Um, You know, I kept crazy hours. And even, you know, even more recently than that, before my son was born, I would be regularly out, you know, into the evening. And truth be told, I love being on the farm in the evening and I love. I I love being on the farm by myself, which I almost never am now. Um, in terms of, you know, being in the field, I'm always, always surrounded by, by other people. And so I do miss that in some ways, but man, did it force me to get my act together and and keep a schedule that was a little bit more sane than what I was doing before. And it works. I wouldn't, you know, I don't know if I would have believed it if someone would have told me that. Um, but it's okay. Farming is an endless list of tasks. And if you give it all your time, it's going to eat it all up and you you just have to prioritize to the time that you give it. and And it turns out it works the same way whether you're working eight or nine hour days or 13 hour days. <laughs>
0: Well, I, there's some sort of a principle out there. And I don't remember whose name it's attached to, but the idea being that, that the work will expand to fill the time available. Mm,
1: yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I haven't given up that I've, I've been very reluctant to give up, and I, I feel like it's my next frontier, is I, I really, really like being at the market. And I'm there just about every week with the help of you know, other staff um, but I really like that face time with the customers. I'm really, you know, s- silly and anal about how the stand is set up. Things like that, that I feel like I might be ready for a change and ready to, to try to hand that off to someone. But it feels like such a big thing to pass off.
0: Well, and and your son's not soccer age yet you know, I mean, once that happens, then then weekends have an entirely different purpose than they do now. So true. Yes. Yes. So I'm not quite sure how to ask this, Kristen. And and, <laughs> and because I feel like this, this is a, a, a one of these themes that keeps coming back on the Farm to Farmer podcast is about people setting limits around around the schedule that they're working on the farm, you know, creating ways of of getting the work done in in an in a time that they're choosing to allot to it rather than just letting the farm have everything that it, that it wants. Mm-hmm. On a, on a, on a nuts and bolts level, how do you go about restricting your work hours? I mean, what, I mean, I, I mean, I, I used to do this on my farm. We'd send the crew home at four 30 and then I'd keep working for another four or five hours um, because there was work to do. And at, at a really functional level, how how do you actually make that work?
1: Well, I think I mean that's honestly a great example of the the kind of thing that having that having my son at the time that I did forced upon me, and I was not happy about it. <laughs> i was I was scared and concerned that the farm would be neglected if i couldn't if I couldn't be there for it. When it, when it needed me. And, and that continues to be a tension that I have, particularly this time of year, when there, there are tons of things I could, I could name off 10 things that I'd love to run outside and do tonight, but I'm not going to do any of them. And that idea that there's, there's things that need doing, and I'm not going to do them, and it's going to be okay, is something that I, I I was forced to come to terms with, um, you know, I would love to be if I needed to spray some Dipel or um, put some copper on the peppers, or I'd love to go out there at dusk or, you know, later in the evening when it's cool and, and get that done. Um, I don't do that anymore. I don't, I don't, I'm not on the farm in the evening um, and that has has meant that I have more I have more staff hours on the farm than I otherwise would because it means that the things that need doing on the farm have to get done. um you know by i might I might work till five o'clock um, till five o'clock. and and then that's it. You know that's what I've got. and it changes it just changes the scope of you know what your list for the day looks like, um what your priorities look like. And it's not all stuff that I'm happy about necessarily, <laughs> um, but I think that time has shown me that it's possible, and you can still run a successful operation doing it. And and I think I'm I'm slowly coming to terms with the idea that um, these are not failures. <laughs> that I don't need to feel feel terrible that I'm not out there. I should what I what I need to be doing and what I need to be reminding myself of is that. This is time that I'm that I'm taking away from the farm. So take it away. Take your mind away and your body (laughs) and and use it, you know, with your family and and doing the things that that you need to maintain your life. And, um, you know, when Cyrus gets older, that's my son. Maybe the equation will change again. I don't know. Um, It certainly has changed every year when he was an infant and then came into, you know, the one year old year in the, in the field. And now he's three and he is, you know, he's an amazing, lovable guy, but he is also hell on wheels. He is just nuts. (laughs) And so, you know, there's a lot of maintenance there. (laughs) And so I think. You know, it's going to be every year is going to be its own package from here on. And it's going to greatly impact my relationship to the farm every year. And but what it's what it's probably never going to mean again is that um, the farm is 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 my everything. And I give it everything that I have That's, that 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 chapter is over.
0: I think it's kind of interesting, you know, and especially in the market farming world. You know, you don't you don't call it the Cordette farm. Right, <laughs> it's, it's not. It's the Blue Moon Community Farm, I mean, we we give our farms these names that are something other than ourself, and so often we get tied up in them, and we become the farm. And I think it's really interesting, and and I think rewarding to hear about you pulling back and and establishing an identity for the farm that's something other than just Kristen Cordette's farm.
1: I think that that's the biggest challenge, honestly, is is feeling like that persona that you've built up is the farm and how do you, you know, what will happen? <laughs> What's going to happen when you step away? And I think that's part of my fears or I don't know, maybe my trepidation about having less of a presence at the farmer's market. Even on the few weeks of the year that I'm not there, I'll hear customers come up to me and say, you guys weren't here last week. Well, of course we were there, but I wasn't. <laughs> and that, right. that That always concerns me. And um. But I do think that, yeah, having having more people having more people have meaningful roles on the farm. Not just our our staff, but we have so many just long term um, worker share volunteers who are just part of the farm, and they they have a way of personifying Blue Moon that's different from me. But it's it's all part of. Of this thing that we're building and and that's become something that at first i I was sort of you know uncomfortable with because I don't know if every small business owner is a control freak, but I certainly was and probably continue to be um wanting to feel like you you have your hands on everything or at least you know what's going on in every aspect, and to some extent that's that's still true, but I'm much better at. At letting go and and trusting the judgment and the and the talents of the people that are around me, because they're very talented and they have great judgment, and it's something that um it it provides huge huge benefits to the farm to the business um to have them there
0: on that note, Kristen, I'd like to take a turn and and uh transition into our lightning round, oh boy. all right so what's your favorite tool on the farm oh the
1: um the johnny's little hand hoe we have about 30 of them floating around the farm gotta love them
0: these are the the well let me let me say that again so tell us about that the the johnny's hand hoe
1: it's got a short little handle and an angular blade and you can be fairly close to the crop, but do a really precision cleanup job once the cultivating tractors come through. And we just love them. Um, They make pretty light work of of hand
0: weeding. What was the last purely recreational activity that you did?
1: Uh, Well, just this last weekend, I I took a day off the farm, which is very exciting. I took Monday off and, and my son and I with some friends went up to um Sheboygan and spent some time on the dunes on the lake and went to the botanical gardens and hung out for 2 days.
0: All right. Way to go.
1: In July. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so awesome. I love that. Awesome. I love to, I love to hear that. <laughs> so what made you decide to become a farmer?
1: I was in I was in my undergrad um studying environmental themes of various sorts and I was also Uh, a dance major. (laughs) It was studying modern dance. And at the time I did not realize this, but later on when I was in the work world and being very frustrated, I made the realization that my mental self is very useless without my physical self being really stimulated. And so I was, um, you know, working in fields that I thought were going to be where my interests lie. But when my body was was stagnant, it it just wasn't working for me, and I spent a summer on a farm um, as a way to clear my mind and figure out what I was going to go back to school and do. And all of a sudden, it just clicked for me. I was I was working so hard; it was so mentally stimulating, it was so physically challenging. Um, it was a it was a a realm of work that I had zero experience, so I was just sort of knocked off my my high horse of being you know, a good student, um, accomplished in what I had been pursuing and just felt like I was starting from ground zero. And I, I really liked that challenge. And so I think, you know, this was back in, um, 1999, 2000, when I, when I moved out to upstate New York and took an internship at Roxbury farm. And that's really where the ball started rolling.
0: And your favorite crop to grow?
1: Ooh, garlic. (laughs) <laughs> we grow a lot of garlic um and it's just one of those one of those crops that's so it's it's it, it, it's such a a signature of time passing on the farm i love that that um way about it when you plant it the very last thing that you do in the fall and it's one of the first green things to pop up in the spring and and it's just beautiful. It's such a beautiful crop to see hanging in the in the barn. Um right now we've got all of our all of our garlic uh laying and hanging to cure and it's just it's just gorgeous.
0: And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be?
1: Hmm. I would have I would have definitely told told myself to quit my job sooner. I I started waiting tables when I started my business thinking I would do this for a year or two until I got myself off off the ground and then um and then quit and I ended up being there 7 years because I was really nervous about taking that leap even though the business was going well and things were things were happening but it it just wasn't it wasn't something I was willing to do and I look back um at that that time right after I I did finally leave, and and things just blossomed. Things exploded for me. I had the mental space and the and the time to really, you know, really shape the farm into what I wanted it to be, and and things just really took off after that. So I would have I I, I would have moved on much sooner.
0: Kristen, thank you so much for being on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Really feel like you brought a ton of value in. and and you know now of course, people are listening to this any time they want, but it's it's four fifty five here you gotta quit soon-
1: <laughs> it's true. well, you know, as luck would have it we we quit at two thirty today <laughs> 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 sometimes we get to get to leave early. <laughs>
0: All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 77 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at podcast dot com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Cordet. That's K O R D E T. Don't forget, you can support the show by going to podcast dot com slash donate or by starting your amazon.com shopping session at podcast dot com slash Amazon. If you enjoy the podcast, I'll bet you would like to be on my email list, The Flying Rutabaga, you can check that out at podcast or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners. One more thing, I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions that I received through the suggestions form on farmer farmerpodcastcom Please let me know who you would like to hear from. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.